Welcome to the 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a retrospective. Hey folks, Brennan here. Thanks for tuning in to our 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you want to reach out or follow us, we're on Facebook and YouTube as 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade, Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch as 25 Years of VTM, and on our website at 25yearsofvtm.com. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash 25 years of vampire the masquerade. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back, everyone, to 25 years of vampire the masquerade presents Werewolf the Apocalypse Corax. I am your DJ for this day, who's also named DJ. <laughs> I just jerked, but that's awesome because it'll stick. I'll be your host, who happens to be DJ. And we have Mike, and Mike, I can actually see it because. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who can see us, you will definitely see my pause right there. My co-host, Mike, Mike, say words to our people. What's up, y'all? It's good to be back. <laughs> it is. You know, it's funny that we should be laughing as well, considering it's a thing that Korax do. Um, but speaking right. of, yeah, we got some interesting takes on this book, considering that uh, it is one of, once again, the most unique changing breeds that we've seen up to date. Um, most of us like to play our were kitties, our, our werewolves, and otherwise. Uh, not many like to play birds, but this book has some interesting takes about how to be able to play these birds. Um, so I guess we'll kind of kick it off from there. Mike, before we begin into the intro story, any anything you want to think about and or what you perceive might be the case with this book? Um, I, so I, I agree with you that the Corax are super unique, and I like them, and I feel like the company is jerking me around a bit, because every time we get to a book, it's like, oh man, this is the this is my new favorite changing breed. And then we go to the next book and it's like, oh, wait, these guys are better. And it's uh, it's very, it's very gratifying. They're on a hot streak here. It's good. Ooh, so then this should be very good to go over. All right, Mike, that being the case, I'll give you the intro story. What are your thoughts on it? What's going on there? So our main character, uh, we, we start literally over the shoulder, like kind of one of those film noir angles. They're walking into a coffee shop. The setting seems real chill. They sit down with their buddy. It's like, hey, buddy, how you doing? Oh, yeah, I remember the thing I told you about the place. And immediately the scene just jumps off into a horrible um, uh, murder, right? There is like a whip-ish thing with a knife on the end of it that we quickly find out is the tongue of a fomor that just pops right through our main character's friend's chest. Um, we go straight to combat. They're duking it out, trying to see what's what. Main character survives because they have to do the main character. But at the end of the fight, we see them gather some evidence. Um, and it's super clear that whoever this lady is, she's like in the middle of some task, right? There's the tainted baby food and a address on a laptop. And you're right there in like a, a real strong intelligence vibe. Um, but then kind of in a, in a unexpected twist, the intro story is one more combat, right? The, our intrepid detective gets double crossed. Um, we see her call on Helios, put a pin in that. Uh, for a gift, right, to, to burn up all of this, this worm-tainted substance. Um, and just like that, we're done. Baby food, baby food. Yeah, it's, it was jarring to me. You, you can tell me if you disagree, but I was a little pushed back. Like, I was, at the end of this story, I was expecting not to like this book because it was so abrupt. 
It was short. It was quick. Didn't waste a lot of my time with setting um, or exposition, but I've, I've gotten used to expecting that from the intro stories. Like they're trying to pack a lot into the little, and this was supposed to be short and sweet, at least, you know, the way I read it. Right. But you know, that's, that's where it kind of comes into play because it's interesting to mention a couple of things. One, it does have that noir feel to it. Right. And what do we get yeah. when we normally have like noir feel? We get that internal monologue that everyone gets to hear. So we have mm-hmm. this detective, mm-hmm. as you were mentioning, investigating this baby food. And as she's going through the whole process of kind of solving everything back to back, she can't help but shut up. And all she's telling you is exactly what she's doing step by step as she finds things, everything from the plan, the laptop, um, to the fact that her informant had died, to the fact that she had that, she almost had like the reverse James Bond villain moment mm-hmm. where she's kind of like, great, I found me the team to baby food. It's time for me to go ahead and blow it up. And then you have the villain go, ha ha. Don't you think I left this on purpose? And it's like, shit, was I talking out loud this entire time? <laughs> right? Which yeah, is one yeah. of the things that we talk about regarding Cordex as well. So I think that's where it's kind of dropping off those little subtle nuggets um, mm-hmm. that you might find further down in the book. To be honest, I actually like this one more than I like most of the other stories, if only because of how straightforward it was written. Instead mm-hmm. of it being like so like superficially everywhere and, and, and batshit crazy. But that's just me. I mean, unless you have a, a different perspective on it. No, no, there's a lot to be said for keeping it tight, keeping it focused. It just, it flipped my expectations on their head, you know? Um, and maybe, maybe that's, that's foreshadowing too. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I guess um, what we'll do about that then is find out what's actually going on with these Corax. And uh special note, as we're kind of going into it, let's talk about what actually created the Corax, right? In history, we got, let me back that up a little bit story as it's being presented reads off a little bit differently than we had it in previous books. Normally, whenever we get stories that are being told to us, we have that subjective voice that's given. Um, but every book had that cool feeling or you were just being told this one great story. If you were looking at it from a werewolf perspective, it's, it's a warrior who's almost certainly telling you what's happening and the great tragedy of the fact that they've done many things. And that's just off the get. You're probably taking a look at the first paragraph that way. Same thing with the best that book and otherwise. However, in this book, it reads off so smooth because the subjective voice almost feels like it's being spoken like someone on the street, right? It's almost like that buddy who's taking you off to work, just going like, Hey, listen here, young bud, take the sandwich. Just go ahead and have a talk. And you have this older mentor, uh, Corax mentor who's talking to someone who just finished, um, getting initiated. And they're talking about the history of Corax. Um, one important thing to note about it is then the fashion that it's being said as well is they tell you straight out that everything that they mentioned should be pretty accurate. Right. Um, we'll get into why they feel that it should be pretty accurate, but it feels very down to earth. Um, speaking about being down to earth as well, they start talking about the history of the world and what place they serve in it. So the first thing to bring up is they mention they are the youngest breed out there. As far as they're concerned, uh, they are the youngest or rather Gaia made them last. Right. Gaia made them last because they had purpose to it. You know, every Every changing breed is said that it has a purpose itself. You have your Garu, who are your warriors, your Bastet, who are out there gathering your secrets um, to be able to use them, your Kole, who have long memory of it. Um, but here come the Korax. And what's special about the purpose of the Korax, do you think? Um, well, it's, they, they kind of speak to it, right? They, they point out, well, they come right out and say, you know, the Mokole have the long memory. And the, the, the Bastet, right? They hoard the secrets to, to, as if to protect them from the ignorant and the unworthy. 
Um, but the Koraks are different. They're out there gathering information because they fully intend to tell everybody. Like on the one hand, their vibe is, uh, like the NSA. They're watching. They know you can't hide. But on the other hand, it's not cloistered and secretive. Their role is to get information to the changing breeds that are bad at gathering information. And to Gaia. Exactly. And especially that because it is to Gaia, because they do mention a funny story about Gaia. And I think at this point, we've heard every funny story there is to be said about Gaia, right? <laughs> Gaia creates, Gaia's out there. She's the one that provides. Everyone's got to serve and protect Gaia. But Gaia is like that run out, worn off single mother who's just out there making sure she's getting everything to everyone. They're like, Baby son, do you have some food? Baby girl, do you have the lunch money that you need to? Who am I forgetting? Did I put something in the wash? Did I not put something in the wash? And why they mention this is because it is important from the Cortex's perspective. You see, when Gaia was creating everything, they mentioned that Gaia, while very, very powerful, is not omniscient, mm-hmm. right? When she first created Nuisha and she's like, let me go ahead and make him the trickster and have him out there, she didn't anticipate that an idea could come to life and do what it does. She had created her changing breeds, her children so well um, that she didn't think it was going to grow to be what it would. And because of it, she looks at it. It's like that kid who's like, put that ice cream down, put that ice cream down. And you're too busy washing the dishes. You're like, well, shit, it's going to take me more time for me to stop washing dishes, go over and chastise this child. than it is for me to just let him do what he's going to do. And at one point or another, someone's going to go ahead and smack him upside the head to give it, let him know what he's doing is wrong. <laughs> and or he might be getting out of hand there. But Gaia, Gaia knew that was going to happen. And because of it, um, that is why the Cortex came around. She knew that all the other changing breeds were fulfilling their functions a little too well. Um, but she didn't have anyone to tell her exactly what it was that was going on. And lo and behold, we get introduced to Ray, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to its finding, to its founding entity there. And Raven says that its purpose was to go ahead and witness everything that happened in the background. It was there to make sure that it traversed all of the information back over um, to Gaia. Um, because it wasn't able to go ahead and do so otherwise. But Raven also had an important purpose as well, because Raven talks about its interaction as well regarding the weaver and the worm. Now, that was pretty interesting. And um, the reason why I do think it's... Mike, do you remember that uh, that conversation, with what Raven's purpose was between the weaver and the worm? I, I don't. I, well, so I, I remember what stood out to me about their description is that Raven... Well, I, Raven corrects both and neither. I'm, someone here in this setting is the first person I can remember to genuinely describe the worm as a victim. Right. They just call it out, you know, worm and weaver got into it. Wild was off somewhere playing with himself and the worm kind of got shafted because he was big and aggressive and the, and the weaver was wily. That's what I remember about that, that interaction. But fill us in. You weren't too bad off of that. And it is important because Raven um, does have that conversation because Raven was created and it was only a witness that also made it a great listener. And being the great listener, when we're taking a look at the triad, you're completely right. The wild was off doing wild things, mm-hmm. but it does bring into perspective that the, the bigger fight that it did take into consideration was between the weaver and the worm, right? They're talking about how one stood for creation, the other one destruction and how they were always going at it. Kind of like these kids who were trying to fight over the same toy. And Raven's talking about the fact of it's like, oh, hold on there. How about this? Because Raven being the listener that it was knew that I had to kind of 
play Arbiter enough, not to get fully involved, but to kind of give options so that people knew what they were getting into, or in this case, the Weaver and the Worm. They're like, all right, we're going to do the whole Age of Destruction and Creation. How about this? Why don't you go ahead and let Weaver do what it's got to do in the Age of Creation? Worm, you go ahead and take afterwards. How's that sound? Sounds like take a good turns! Play nice! Take, take turns, play nice, but then what ends up happening? Weaver don't play like that. Right. Weaver's wily. Weaver goes ahead and traps Worm and then starts making him upset. And then during that period in time, now we get, you know, all types of messed up things happening because Weaver and Worm just can't play nice. And of course, it drives the Worm crazy, but it's not the fact that Raven didn't try because that's exactly what Raven was there to do. It was there to kind of give up, you know, the the, the ability to have those uh, turns that weren't presented before. This is also different because in other Changing Breach stories that we heard, we don't have that kind of interaction. We usually have the dance um, from Gaia's perspective, right? Mm-hmm. From what ends up happening to Gaia in the background and how these other facets of the triads are kind of playing around Gaia itself. But Korax, once again, or in this case, the Raven, is actually treating a lot of this kind of, once again, I'm kind of imagining this, especially how it's being told the exact same way you would if you were watching The Matrix and you have the Oracle's room, right? And she's out there making cookies and everyone else is in the background. They have all these different types of powers and you're kind of wandering and listening to the story itself. Um, and, and, and it brings into light of that because another thing is it gives you the balance of why Raven is what it is. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, and the reason why Raven is what it is is because, once again, Gaia just created something and ideas grow too quick. And when we're talking about that, what makes Raven interesting and unique is that Raven knew that it was actually quite quick-witted over its other brethren. So much so that they go, hey, listen, if Gaia made me this way, then why aren't I not able to bargain for a lot of things, right? Right. So every time you need information for Raven, Raven going to go ahead and give it to you, but it's going to cost you something at one point or another. I like that shiny thing. It could be something small. It could be something big, but that's exactly what ends up happening there, right? During that period in time, though, um, we get to understand how Raven's position actually stands amongst the rest of its kin, because Raven is different. Unlike most of our other kin that we've spoken about right now who have been affected by Luna, Raven isn't. Raven actually has an interesting story to tell as it comes to its relationship with Helios. Yeah. Did you know, Mike, (laughs) that the Raven was once white and had golden eyes? It's propaganda. It's propaganda. I don't believe in any Aryan Ravens on my... (laughs) I'm I'm kidding. Yes, that is the story they tell, and I never would have (laughs) thought. I never would have thought. You you want to tell us that story? Sure. Yeah, right. Fine. Um, so they basically say that in way back in the before times, right, um, Luna is doing her Luna mm-hmm. thing and handing out everybody's gifts. Right. At this time, ravens have white feathers and golden eyes. Um, but at this time, ravens also have auspices, as do almost all the changing breeds. Right. So Luna is being praised and venerated by all of Gaia's purpose-built warrior children of changing breed type. Well, Helios, who they present as a bit thick-headed, sees this and is like, well, well, fine then. I'm going to take my toys and go home. And he steals uh, son, uh, the son from from the, 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 the changing breed, right? He takes all the warmth. He takes all the light. He says, fuck you guys. I'm going home. And he goes to live in his celestial high umbral shack. Right. You can see the rays of light peeking out from in between the slats, but that's certainly not enough to make it all the way down to Earth. Well, being the only changing breeds that can fly, as the Corax like to point out, they go up there and they say, oh, man, uh, this 
this isn't good. Uh, how are we going to get Helios out? And they knock and he doesn't answer. He's, he's, he's pouting. He feels like he's unloved, unappreciated. Some enterprising young Korax, maybe Raven themselves, hatches an idea. They go back down to Earth and they get a mirror. Um, you might have heard a version of this story, by the way, in the Noesha book. Or I feel like this isn't the first time we've heard this, but this is the most detail we've ever gotten. Anyway, right. Anyway. Exactly. Uh, so they take the mirror back to Helios and kind of set it up in front of his door. Now, being as bright as he is, in a literal sense, and as dumb as he is, also in a literal sense, uh, when he finally does open the door, he sees his own reflection. And the Ravens start talking trash about how, oh, man, we've got this new star, buddy. It's too bad Helios left. Uh, and they get him in his feelings. And he goes from pouting to straight up depressed. Right. He's just he's sad. If he if he could do horrible things to himself, he probably would. Well, then they, they reel him in and they say, hey, Helios, we got to hook up. We can bring you back, but you got to come right now. Helios gets excited because he was feeling so bad just a moment before and he immediately starts chasing them like a bat out of hell away from his house, trying to get back in time to get his new job. And this is how the Ravens get roasted and go from golden eyed, white feathered to black eyed and black feathered flying away from Helios in his haste to come back and join us. Meanwhile, they lose their auspices. They lose all of their Luna stuff and they just get changed. They, they just get changed, which is why, you know, they get to be so proud about being Helios touched and Helios blessed and, and blah, blah, blah. Really like this story. Because he, because Helios is out there going like my new best friend. Come over here, and you're like, go <laughs> you're cooking me. But, oh god! But but <laughs> yeah, but that that's actually unique, and it's a it's a pretty interesting story because of the way that it's presented, right? It then means, of course, they lose their auspices because they're no longer, um, you know, in line to pick up gifts for the Luna Shop. They were already they had their Beth Bad and Beyond sticker. It's already three p.m. Store's about to open up. They get <laughs> hugged by Helios instead. They're like, all right, well, I guess I'm getting full discounts here. Mm -hmm. Why not? Right? Freeze the flavor of the month, especially when it comes to Helios. Um, but because of it, Raven does take a lot of veneration to it as well. Yeah. It's not to say that Korax don't ignore um, Helios, but they, they, they definitely venerate um, Helios for having given gifts that no other would probably get, uh, and especially because they were considered in such a case. What's also interesting about this, though, is, you know, they, they talk about the information about why they do what they kind of end up doing. Right. Um, they carry information, but it's important to notice that the information that they're telling you, and especially this early in the book, is to say they say it as fact. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason why they say it as fact, you know, was what I thought was pretty interesting. I still think it's a little bit of BS, as all kind of narrative storytellers are. But the way they sell it to you is pretty interesting. Why? Right. Why is because they say any information that's given has to be accurate. Because if you can't recite or tell that information accurately, then it's worse than never having like told that information at all. The only good information is accurate information. So up until now, so far, the story that we have for this creation myth has to be accurate. Mm -hmm. So they say. So they say. I mean, so far, we got the Noesha kind of cooperate. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. But so far, it's kind of rubbing off that way. Um, you know, Raven, uh, Raven then goes and goes like, oh, well, we got a lot of stuff from Helios. It's going to be good. I got this and I got this. I got my gift baskets. It's time to go ahead and uh, head on back. Um, but Raven does something interesting. He calls all its children together. And it's like, all right, folks. So um, we played this trick on Helios. And we got all these goodies from him, right? But the problem is, it's not going to be good if he finds out those you know, discount coupons that we were using are expired. 
and he's going to get upset at us once he finds out the jig is up and that we tricked him. <laughs> but he's like, all y'all, take what you need and scatter. Yeah. Like straight up scatter. Yeah. Um, which gave precedence to them traveling all to all corners of the world, up to and including the Umbra. Right. Mm-hmm. We have them moving all over because they don't want to get caught. And also getting caught and having them lost if something should ever happen to them would be very, very, very disadvantageous. Um, and that's where we start getting the the story about why the Koraks are currently prolific as they are, you know, especially when it comes to the Umbra. They've seen uh, more things than most and they've traveled north because they do have those wings. But they also speak about something else regarding their creation and what the creation is different um, than the other changing breeds. Specifically, they talk about eggs. Yeah, yeah. And see, I need you to help me with like, this. I need you to help me with this because I didn't, I didn't quite grok it. And I think you might have, right? All right, all right. I'll set it up and then we'll get into it. Okay, yeah, yeah. Set it up, set it up. I'm sorry. All right, all right, cool, cool, cool. So what ends up happening is Raven's telling us, all right, it's been flying, it's around, um, it knows a lot of things, and it's very, very, very clever. And as it's taking a look at all the other changing breeds, it knows that these mammals know how to mate. And it's like, all right, they're, they're able to go prolific. But, you know, one of the issues that they currently have is obviously Metis is a thing. Most of these changing breeds thus far that we kind of covered, at least have a version of Metis that is kind of given into them um, because they kind of fall into it, right? They kind of uh, make the mistake and or the because of the way the blood kind of makes us together, it, it creates this abomination, though it depends on, you know, which breed you're speaking about. Raven, on the other hand, recognized that not so is the case as it comes to their breed. And the reason why is because they felt that they were busy too much, these other changing breeds, focusing between the flesh and spirit, and they were getting the ratio wrong, right? It's kind of when you're trying to create, like, you know, like a Jaeger bomb, but you're not exactly, yeah. well, that's not mixing up so well. But they knew that it was all spirit. So knowing that it was all spirit, they decided instead of what they're going to do is we can't put in, we can't have them mate in such a fashion that we're going to be able to go ahead and procreate because if they end up shifting, it's going to be an egg. And no matter which way you cut it, that egg is not going to come out pretty. Mm-hmm. But what if we set this egg and we set it deep in the umbra, right? We set it deep in the umbra and we recognize that in order for us to go ahead and create this, we're going to need either a feather or a lock of a hair and we're going to tie them together. We're going to hold on to that. And in physical world, we're going to have our perspective, or, you know, our perspective newborn out there. And in the umbra, we're going to have this egg. And what it will help do is that it'll prepare the vessel um, from not having to go insane, from not having to feel the pains that it normally would, especially as the other changing breeds do when they go through their first change. Um, so that when that spirit egg does mature and it hatches, it starts the process of both parts of the soul joining in. Right. So that is very unique with it. So now that I've laid it down there for you, Mike, what were you feeling about it? So I dig it. I, I very much like it. Right. I like the idea that. Well, for thematic reasons, I think they kind of hold on to the, the concept of birds are hatched from eggs. Um, I also like the explanation they give about how, you know, Raven's looking for a, that workaround. Right. For the power and energy of a, a Korak spirit might be too much, blah, blah, blah. Um, what I don't understand is if the Korax is already living, like in the real material world, and then when the egg hatches in the umbra is roughly when they have their first change, right? And that, that Korak spirit has like it's it's hatching because it's ready to abide in the same body as a person. 
how in the world do they end up getting together? Because it sounds like they're in two places. Like, did I miss that somewhere? No, you didn't. But at the same token, we would almost say it's a spirit, right? There's certain things that you happen with it. There's a lot of stuff that also kind of touches upon different mythologies, kind of like the Ka and Ba, as we kind of speak about, you know, souls, especially ancient Egyptian ones, or as we covered in like Quijin, where um, the Po separates itself from the body. Po, of course, being the negative energy or the negative demon spirit. I should say the I wouldn't say negative, but dark spirit inside of a, of a kindred of the East, right? Of an Asian vampire, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then both of them will mix together to kind of make two halves of a whole. And that's kind of what happens here. The awakening of one in one location doesn't necessarily mean that it has to kind of go to the other, right? It's more symbolic than anything as well. There are ways to kind of interpret it. And I think the, the best way I said about it is I kind of... My imagery is all types of whacked folks, so I apologize, but I think of it kind of like a video game where you kind of like, it hatches and it's like one up, and you see the one up just kind of go up until it fades away um, <laughs> before it takes up residence, because it's already been bound. It already knows where that spirit should be going in the first place. That's the whole point of also having that that lock of hair and or the single feather to kind of bind them. It just happened to be that you were waiting to them matured, you know, because alternatively speaking, what happens if that egg doesn't hatch? That egg doesn't hatch because it, it's just pure energy, right? Mm -hmm. Once it's there, if, if, uh, Black Spiral Dancer, Banes, other Garu, anything looking for sheer power, these these eggs are in high demand. And if something should happen to the egg in which it ends up breaking, um, unfortunately, you know, it's, uh, it's vessel or the human, you know, eventually ends up becoming stricken. Um, in this book, they kind of write it as autistic, which I think is a little bit unfair, but I could kind of see where they're kind of going with it, where the person just doesn't feel something's out, something's missing. Yeah. In one way, shape or another. And the perception is that something's missing. Um, what happens afterwards, it doesn't mention, but it leaves it to the user or the reader's imagination to say that, you know, you, you missed your opportunity. And one of the things to kind of go with it as well is when we're talking about the eggs, these eggs, while they might be the best way to kind of proliferate so that you don't have to worry about menace being an issue and that you might get a pure or better breed from their perspective, mm -hmm. you can't be laying an egg all the time. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of work uh, and a lot of gnosis to be able to lay one of these eggs. So the investment is very much uh, on top there. But that was a, a unique take on it. And um, I don't know. I, I like it, as you mentioned, because of the symbolic reasons behind it as well. Mm -hmm. um, but but they it, it gives the edge as to why they're a little bit unique in the fashion that they are, right? Versus what the other changing breeds are that we've covered so far. But that kind of good takes us through at least to creation, but we're not over yet because we right. still got a whole bunch of Corax to go, right? They distract you for a little bit because Corax being what they're doing. You know, our author at this moment in time is uh, still telling a story to his young blood and he starts going over um, the history of them. As we get to the first portion of it, which I believe is the Imperium and War of Rage. Now, the Corax had a very interesting part to play in this, which is to almost say, what? They had a, a place in it? Yes, no, maybe so. So they do admit that they have some culpability, right? But I still felt like they kind of tried to dodge. Well, before we even get there, right, our listeners don't know what type of culpability. Take us back. What's what's going on here that you would feel that they would have some sort of culpability? Okay, so the Koraks say that when the Garu start ripping shit up and, and trying to, like, exercise dominance over the other changing breeds, um, they're there, 
but they didn't want to help, right? They and other changing breeds didn't really even care what the Garu were on about until the Garu made them care, right? They brought the heat in such a way as to um, kind of force everybody into a position to take a side. Um, the Garu ended up standing on their own because they're very clearly, obviously wrong and acting outside their mandate. Um, but regardless, the effect of that ends up being uh, the changing breeds aren't necessarily unified enough to resist the Garu in a meaningful way. Whereas the Garu are natural pack animals that are some of the more effective predators. I think they, they use superlatives to describe how good the Garu are at hunting. The point is, everybody gets kind of knocked back on their heels because it's not like there was an alarm system that said Impergium starting, call the humans, obey the Garu, war of rage. Um, Whoa, I got to... I got to insert myself in there because we got to talk about. You're right. I mean, no one really cared in the beginning. Right. And even more so the core accident, because the way they even phrase it is the guard were doting over their human playthings. And if this is the project they wanted to do, well, that's their project. Right. This doesn't have anything to do with us. But remember that Corex are witnesses to everything that's been going on. Yeah. So you could also imagine that they probably saw what was happening because they do mention it's not that they didn't tell folks. It's the same thing happens over and over again when they hear Korak speak, right? Well, which is what <laughs> people ignore the birds because they score. they get ignored. They talk about exactly. It. But the thing is, if the Koraks have seen something that's so grievous, which I imagine they would have, I think that they would have told somebody. And it's the difference between the boy, the boy calling wolf, and the boy calling house on fire. You know. Like you don't you don't think the Garu kind of okay. catch the other changing breeds on their back feet a little bit there? No, no one's saying that they didn't catch them on their back feet. But what we're talking about, and I think what's being said here as well, is what part did the Corax play? It's not like they didn't do anything because you're right. And the, at least with the Imperium, they didn't care. Once again, it's because they just honestly, even the book it boldly says they didn't care yeah. uh, about the humans. What the Garu were doing with them was completely fine. <laughs> Um, because theirs is only to witness. They were kind of like those safari photographers who are just there to take the pictures for the most <laughs> part. They're not going to get involved because theirs is to just bear witness to it, no matter how grievous, no matter how crazy it is. Theirs is just to report what they find. Mm -hmm. Right. But when they did try getting involved, there were the moments that they do interject and do deliver the news. It just goes to kind of show the duality of certain things. No one listens to the birds. Why? Because they're always chatty. They can't help but not tell and talk over and over and over again. They're like, ah, shut up. Right, and they leave them alone. They don't want to see anything about it. Yeah, but yeah. the birds are like, "No, nah, bro, you you really got to pay attention to this. these these wolves. They be coming." Yeah, they're like, nah, 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 they, they're not. And, and that kind of goes to show, or at least at this point in time, it kind of gives us an idea that I think they're telling a tale sure. a little bit more than anything else. They're kind of driving home why the Koraks are in the fashion that they are. Um. Because you're right, everyone has a service of purpose, and their purpose is to tell the news, but no one wants to listen. This is the, the dual edge blade. This is where we start getting into like the parables, right? The Korax even mentioned uh, our author um, is telling his young blood, he's like, listen, you've probably heard all these stories before from every other changing breed. The guard would tell the stories they need to get their warriors pumped up. The best that tell the stories they need to go ahead and do so they can start searching for their, their history. Um, but those stories are told because they're meant to do one thing, which is embolden you to do what you were meant to do. 
And in this case, the story that I hear being told, especially because these other changing breeds just seem to have kind of like ignore them, mm-hmm. is like, we know the truth. People just don't want to hear the truth. And we hear this a lot, even in real life, right? Like people just don't want to hear the truth or maybe uh, they just don't want to listen because everyone has their own agenda, which kind of up to and including the, the Korax, right? This goes to show that no one is perfect. Up to and including these Korax up in this moment in time where all the information they should be telling us is accurate are not without fault. And clearly, I think to me, uh, I read it as these other changing breeds were also not without fault, up to and including the Garo. It's just, it was the free-for-all that it was. Corax did their part of the duty, which is they they, they reported back saying, hey, hey, uh, he's, he's busting heads out there. No one to pay attention, and this is where we ended up. Or at least that's the way I kind of took it. But they did something interesting, right? Where all the other all the other changing breeds are kind of having like this fight with Garo and they're seeing their numbers kind of dwindle. Um, the first time around, Korax do something special. They recognize that if there ain't no kinfolk left, there's not going to be any of them left. So the Korax start the first underground railroad of kinfolk <laughs> and start scattering them to the winds to make sure that they're taken care of. Even though other changing breeds are still upset at them for what might seem like a pack of non-aggression or not even taking effect, mm-hmm. Korax are like, hey, we've been taking care of your kinfolk and we did more for your kinfolk than you did for your kinfolk. You just didn't recognize it. Yeah, I thought that was a very poignant mark to make there. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was all types of good. They do. They do also tell that story of where in one one particular instance that we had an eyewitness account of, you know, somebody crossed the line with a group of kinfolk and were suddenly surrounded by a murder of crows. Um, you remember that mm-hmm. story? Like they had secreted somebody off to the Pacific Northwest somewhere and uh, the wrong right. pack of Garu went too far. And the Korak showed up in force. I respected him for that. But again, is that was another moment that makes me feel like maybe for the only time in this book, I can't rely on my Korax narrator. It just seemed a little bit, a little bit too self-serving. Just a little. I'm not going to say no. Okay. If anything we've learned from these books and the spirit of Bob is out there somewhere, like <laughs> hovering over us, like a picture of a deity, right? At the Last Supper yeah. trying to tell us, yeah. my children, if you've never learned anything from listening to us before, it's that every changing breed has their own subjective voice and they have a, a certain amount of shit that they talk. <laughs> and in this case, it might just be the narrative that's being spun uh, by our Corex friends here. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, kinfolk be saved, first war rage comes and goes, Imperium happened, and then we're kind of just stuck with what the Corex is up to. Now, Korax at this moment, especially because they've seen Raven doing his thing, they know that uh, the Weaver and the Worm are still currently at it. And that the, worms, the Worm has every right to be upset, and so far the Worm hasn't really, really blown up in the fashion that they've recognized it. But that's because they're too busy being fascinated by Weaver, right? During this period in time, we see civilization starting to grow. And where all their other changing breed brethren are doing what they're doing, man, they're not going to be as cool as these humans. Have you seen what these humans were able to do? Yeah. Make fire yeah. stick, yeah. build things. What? You know how many stories we got to tell off of that? Uh, Korax at this moment in time are, are very, very fascinated by what the humans are currently up to, right? They, they talk about things that they've also kind of done with humans. You know, we get snippets about how um, Odin and his raven are there and how their mythology starts playing and how the Greeks also have them. In the, in the form of Odin, you talk about how Odin's memories are... Um, uh, those two ravens. I, their names slipped through my head. It was like Mugen and like Mugen, Mugen, if Mugen. I'm not mistaken. It's the There we go. <laughs> 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 I 
<laughs> but it's interesting how it's pre- uh, how it's presented because it only kind of reinforces the fact of what Raven was supposed to do, which is present information, right? Odin Odin will sit on his throne until his ravens come back to him and present him the information. Up until that moment, he's kind of like inert, for lack of a better term, which goes to show the wisdom of the raven, what they uh, what they bring to the table. Same thing happens in Greece in terms of like how other animals are also venerated and where the raven also stood. Where Owl got a lot of love from the other goddesses, Raven still served its purpose, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but this also kind of moves throughout the time. They also kind of speak about, well, we'll get into that in a moment because we haven't gotten that far yet in history. But we start getting towards the next part, which is like our second war of rage. What happened this time, Mike, that was different than the first time around? Um, if I remember correctly, hold on. Cause I'm, 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 I'm blending the two wars. Is this the time where they describe having to, uh, no, 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 this is, Overseas. no, 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 this is the, this is the second time where they, they come back to the Pacific Northwest, right? They say some of their ancestors are already in the pure lands and we were already talking to these people and we already knew what was up. So by the time, like our narrator, right. yeah, okay. So rolling all the way back to, um, when Ravens told everyone to scatter, the chorus especially take that to heart. But because of the way that they pass information, they know that there's other changing breeds in the in the Pure Lands long before the Europeans get around to coming. But by the time they meet their long lost cousins, um, you know, because Korax don't gather that often, there is a little bit of a divide, right? Like culturally, they ain't all the same kind of bird. Am I remembering that correctly? It's not that you're far off from it. It's that they aren't, well, obviously all of Korax and their members uh, stretch across the world are obviously a little bit different. They have something that kind of hold on to that they do and, and consider their own personal meta. What is interesting, you know, that we're trying to get at here as well is the fact that once again, we fall into a position where Korax know the information and no one wants to listen to them. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. They out there, they knew that battle was going to go down, especially when we're talking about the worm bringers. Um, and, and that battle just kind of takes place, right? What kind of made it a little bit different this time around was because they knew of their cousins and they had that information, this time they were a lot more protective of their kin than they were before. We had that story that you were right. You know, kin folks started going a little bit up and they, they tell people, listen, you got a choice. You keep us Korax out of it. Because if you don't and you start attacking our kinfolk, imagine all the information that we have on you. Right. Wouldn't it be sad if we were to give away where your encampment is? Wouldn't it be horrible if this cairn of yours suddenly were attacked by your enemies, right? I'm not saying the worm, but we're saying all your other opponents. It's better even if it just is a single Nuisha taking care of your cairn than, you know, a group of, or a get of Fenris who took it forcefully from someone else and it was starting to eye them. Yeah, a real, a real information broker but, is safe because nobody wants their information to get out. <laughs> right. Yeah. And in this the time, especially during the Second World War Raids, they talk about how they were able to keep themselves relevant as well. As well. Because even though we know that the Garo were made for fighting, they keep pretty good relations with them, mm-hmm. right? They were able to go ahead and provide just enough information to say, I think I might have seen this guy over there, but they didn't give them the information of like, yeah, but here's where he lies down. This is who he with. This is what he'd be eating at 12 in the afternoon. This is what he has after supper. He goes to CS at this time. Korax didn't do that. You know, that's how they were able to kind of ensure the survival was by just giving a little bit enough. But it doesn't mean they were friends with anyone else or rather weren't friends with anyone else because they did have information. And one of the things you got to do is bear witness. 
You know, you got to get invited to the party and be like, yo, there's a battle going down. Do you want to see what's going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tag along. I'll see what's good. But I think I'll tell you what's happening there. What might have been annoying is I could only imagine the pack of, of Red Talons going to hunt and the Korax is just out there cawing and cackling and saying all these things like, hey, got any food? Got any food? It's like, man, this guy just shut up. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but, uh, but that's, uh, that's something that the Korax bring to bear because it does mention that they do have very good ties. And though, uh, there were things that did happen and once again, seeing kin versus kin and, you know, the pure having to deal, um, with our European brethren there, especially for Garu, it, it caused that divide. It, it showed that the Korax are able to stand. And it is also a measure as well that they do witness many horrible things, but they got to stand with it. You can't turn your eye away from it. Um, and it continues forward. Yeah, and you get the, you get real strong. Like moment of silence for our brothers, <laughs> for sure. You, but you, I got real strong journalism vibes, right? Like on the one hand, we're all guys, creatures. You know, when you see somebody doing the wrong thing, uh, you're supposed to get in there and intervene and do your part. But on the other hand, I can see where the Corax would say, "Our role is to witness, and if we ever show meaningful bias, nobody will ever trust us again." And they already halfway don't listen to us. So I, I don't I don't hold them uh-huh. that responsible for not picking sides or not picking sides to a greater extent than they did. Um, but it is a it's another one of those painful moments in, in changing breed history for sure. That'll <laughs> <laughs> become a soundbite at one point five. This day in changing breed history. Uh this is what we're reporting up there. Um but time does move on, right? And the Korax are, are currently continuing to ride the wave. And it isn't until a significant period in time that the Korax actually consider important to them in all human history. Mm-hmm. And that actually happens to be the Great War. Why? Because up until that time, humans are funny things. They stay to the ground. Ain't no one ever took to the sky until those Wright brothers came around. They laughed at the creation, and it was pretty good. But it wasn't until the First World War where we actually started seeing industrialized versions of these items start going into the sky. And at that point, Kordak starts to go like, oh, shit, Skies ain't, ain't for us anymore. Or I should say we ain't the only ones up here. Right. right? They even jokingly talk about like, hey, listen, with, with everything that's going on out there, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of people dying out in the Great War. There's a lot of eyes we could plug. Intent, we'll get into that in a bit. But more importantly, the, they got to watch out for getting sucked into the engine or getting shot down accidentally or getting even hit by an airplane. Um, and these are things in which they know that maybe – just maybe uh, there might be something going on with these humans. Yeah, yeah. These these right. guys are. We're gonna follow your. Career. What do you feel about the flights? So I, hmm, yes, I think that the Corax took it a little harder than they should have. Yes, humans can fly now. They're no longer the dominant force in the air as as the Corax. But with all the value that they say that they placed on information. You do kind of get that image of, of the, uh, the raven who, who feasts on death, right? Who thrives in the aftermath of battle. Because I can only imagine what they learn from so many places with the, uh, well, I, I guess we can roll into it. The eye drinking thing is, is critical to me, mm. um, in the greatest military conflict ever, uh, at that point on earth. It's just battlefields littered with dead bodies and Korax say that they love information. I think they came out much further ahead than the, the I guess, presumptive trade-off of not being the only one who can really and truly fly. Um, mm-hmm. it, the battlefield is a, a treasure trove for them because of the eye-drinking thing. 
<laughs> so, right. So, speaking of the eye drinking thing, I think this is a good time to actually go into it. You know, what can you tell us about the eye drinking thing? They, that just sounds a little is, bit awkward. I mean, we don't see it in movies where they poke out eyes. But it why? is as if the Koraks have a ritual that is just like hardwired into their DNA, bro. They approach a dead body. They have to choose an eye. I didn't really get this. I felt like it was just like a thematic nod to Odin. They have to choose one or the other of two eyes of a dead man. Ask him nicely for permission. And if permission is granted, they drink mm-hmm. the, the literal fluid from a dead person's eye to learn their memories. In some cases, even see precisely what killed the um, the deceased person. And Depending on which eye they drink, they'll get some glimpse of either the positive or the negative outcome of that person's death, presumably because there's always a positive and negative outcome of any death, which is problematic to me. But I see what they're going for. Right. And I was about to ask that it does significantly stand symbolically for something right to be able to see the last moments of someone through everything good that's kind of happened to them or the negative version of them. And sometimes they don't get a choice. Yeah. You know, sometimes your <laughs> corpse is a, not, not every corpse has two eyes. So sometimes you got to get what you get. Yeah. But how do they get permission? Obviously, if they're, if, if a corpse is dead, how does the Raven know that the corpse is giving permission? Uh, I believe the quote is, you just kind of feel it in your belly. <laughs> 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 like that's but that's what I say. It's like they have a ritual hard coded into their DNA, right? It's not like they invoke some ghost, mm-hmm. right? It's not like every Korax is a necromancer. They just kind of go stand on a guy's chest and shake a tail feather and say, "Would you please let me learn the last of your secrets?" Pretty please, Mister Dead Man. And if they get a rumbling in their tumbling, they know it's all good to eat die. It's funny you should mention that because every now and then I can imagine a quarterback just sitting there because it has to be in Corbett form, of course. You can't do it in human. That, that's just that's way too hard. You can't do it in the Krenos form either. But you have to do it in the Corbett form, which is their their base standard where, uh, raven form. And they'd be standing there and the wings be going like flapping. And it's like, pretty please, let me go ahead and poke out your eyes so that I may learn your secrets. And they're like, <laughs> well, he ain't saying no. So it's got to mean Right, yes. right. <laughs> The implication. Silence is not content. Silence is not content, Raven. <laughs> but if it gets that tingling in his belly, uh, a Raven does know and gets permission to be able to do so. And the reason why Raven is also able to um, feast from the carrion is because it's symbolic as well. Um, Gaia had made it so that these these Raven were witness to everything. They knew that the, the Gar were going to get into war. They knew that bloodshed was going to be a thing. We know what the, the trappings of the Weaver, Wild, and the Worm are supposed to be. And the witnesses of everything in the end times are going to be those Ravens. So the aftermath of your battlefield is always going to be there. And where Raven might have not been initially there to witness the first time around, they were given that trick to be able to go ahead and pick on those eyes, to be able to tell on that story. Right? Uh, um, speaking about telling on stories... I think we should probably cover why is it important for Ravens to cover stories and especially them being more accurate than anything else. Why do you suppose that's the case, Mike? Um, for me, it just felt, how do I say integrity might be the wrong word. That might be like too highfalutin. Um, but I do feel like, the Ravens are trying to tell us we, while others have memories and while everybody talks, we are 
um, uh, resilience is the wrong word too. It's like when they, to them, when they talk, it's more important. They have to always tell the truth. They have to tell the truth to the first three Ravens they meet. They um, only gather when there's some real important truth telling to be done. Uh, it, it just seemed like a, a, a holier thing to me. I don't, I don't know if you're, uh, you're getting at something specific here. You're not far off because I could see where it would be a matter of integrity, but I would probably say that integrity is probably the best word to mm-hmm. choose, right? Because it doesn't make sense for you to be witness to things and then give off the wrong information. You'd be betraying your duty to Gaia. If the point of you was to witness and give off accurate information of what it is that you saw, there's no point in fibbing it. You know, we talk about Ravens being the tricksters, but they're not like the Nuisha, right? Uh, whereas the Nuisha might do it so that lesson could be specifically taught. Um, or sometimes even just for a trick itself, because there is meaning found in the lesson of being a trickster. Ravens are tricksters for different reasons. They might trick you. They probably don't have to lie about it, but they're doing it so that you can see that there are different options being presented because the Raven did no more than you did. You just didn't choose to listen to mm-hmm. it at that time. Not because there was a, a hidden meaning, much like in the same way in the Nuisha might be taking a look at it, but directly because the Raven's just trying to remind you that its way is probably a little bit better than what you thought might have been the case, right? I think it talked about how it tricked the Wendigo into like raging out and hulking out and trying to come after it instead. Because if it didn't hulk out after the Raven, it would have died uh, in another battle if it would have directed its, its powers over there. But yeah, that's a, that's one of the main reasons why we have that moment of integrity to be able to tell the truth. So much so that when Corex do gather together... Well, I was just, just going to say, and you can you can tell, like the book describes the way that they pass information to each other with the tell the first three guys you hear thing. It has the that benefit that you get from uh, like peer review in school where you got to read a peer review paper. Because if mm-hmm. one raven comes across a piece of information, tells it to three ravens, and they all tell it to three more ravens, and that one raven also wasn't the only eyewitness, you get credibility from repetition. It's like the opposite of a telephone game. Right? They're so serious about it, they repeat it over and over and over and over yes. again. So by the time it gets to whoever hears it next, the, the elements that are consistent across all versions of the story, assuming it's not the same story from everybody, should stand out. It's like it's built-in redundancy. I found that really interesting. Mm. Corex also does something really interesting as well, which is something that I haven't heard about too many changing breeds. Now, we know the bats that have like their secret dead realms in which they create these pockets. Ain't no one going to be able to find them. This is my little hidey hole. Corex are a little bit different. And the reason why they are different is because remember that whole time when we went all the way to the back and we rewind the clock? <laughs> Raven got his little bag of goodies he, he took from Helios and he was like, hey, folks, Helios might find out one day and Jig's going to be up if he catches all of us. So all of us scattered. And we talked about that one or couple of Ravens that went deep into the Umbra. Well, while they were deep in the Umbra, it's not like they didn't do anything. When they were deep in the Umbra, they actually did a whole bunch of scouting. You know, one of the things that they most... Pax may have not noticed, or denizens walking into the Umbra, is that Korax actually mapped out a heavy portion of the Umbra themselves. You know, they, they're part of a camp that normally would be called Sun Loss, because they, whereas they were gifted originally by Helios, um, the per- they sacrificed that aspect to, to dedicate towards Helios to be able to uncover the truth, to see just how much further, because they are pioneers and scouts, and further deep into the Umbra they've been. They rarely spend any time, if at all, coming back to the surface world, um, because they're too busy scouting. Every now and then, though, they'll come just like a shark right beneath the wave, right near Umbra to find other Koraks and share their stories, because it doesn't make sense to discover everything that they have without passing that information on to other kin and or to hear what's going on topside. 
Um, but I found that very interesting as well that, you know, there's a, there's a slight sense of tragedy there because uh, it kind of ties into, you know, Raven's laws, which we'll get into in a second about what is considered important for them, right. To, to be able to witness these things. So, yeah. And these some all start there. There's, there's um, such prodigious scouts. What did the guy say? He said, if anytime a son lost scratches a message and you find it, you should assume it was meant for you specifically. Right. Yeah. You should assume it was meant for you. Specifically. So these yeah, dudes are right. so committed that they don't just go scout and they don't just pass messages along as they uh, get around to it. They pass specific messages along for specific people because that is the level of importance and sensitivity of what they find out there. That was cool. Would you say that's probably where a lot of the wisdom may or may not come from as well? Because we know that there are certain things that come, especially with the renown, like glory, honor, wisdom itself. But this is actually putting to use some of that wisdom that they have gained instead of just passing information here where you actually get to reap the benefits of that information instead of just passing that information along. Can yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I, I do. I think that they it cost them something, right? Some number of members of their breed just go get lost off in the umbra and leave their family behind. And, you know, any murder they ever worked with, anybody who remembers them, they just don't get to see them anymore. But what you get for that is in exchange for that person's utter devotion to the task, you get the most juiciest of shinies from the, the far reaches of, of the spirit world. This is true. All right, Mike, let's get into one of the, the most intricate parts about what it is to be a raven. There are ravens' laws. You want to start off? Yeah, I mean, so let me. How do I? How do I say this? They, they're straight. Their their laws are clear. Like you probably could have guessed them uh, at this point in the book because it's very. Okay. How do I say that it's very. Uh, it's evident in the way that they live what they believe. Anyway, um, the first one, there are no secrets, right? The, the text literally says, it's your duty to uncover every secret you can, even the unpleasant ones left alone in the dark secrets fester, rot, and turn into some damn unpleasant things. Um, clear cut. If the Korax know, it's not a question of if they're going to tell it, it's when and to whom. And, you know. Right, which leads us to our second one, which is definitely law number two, share what you know. Having information that you can't share means squat and diddly, right? They're not like Bastet who try to hoard that information. They have their own secrets and magics they could call upon and or they're not as conniving as perhaps a Garo or Shadow Lord that might be going in there. This information doesn't mean anything unless that information goes somewhere to the benefit of someone, right? And in most cases, it's always going to be... Um, Obviously, Korax, but it could also be the benefit of Garu if it helps them in an advantage in a battle. Anything up to and including a forewarning. Those things are important for them to be able to do. Next one, um, Mike, what we got? Uh, teach them what they'll learn. It is almost as if the first two were combined. Um, how do I say that? Uh, it takes it takes on the, the flavor of a, of a warning, right? I am telling you because I have to tell you because this is coming to you, whether you like it or not. And if I don't tell you by the time you learn it for yourself, it'll be too late. Um, so here's a question then. Do I have to tell you everything? I think that a Corex would say yes, both because of what their, their mandate is and because of 
the uh, that whole blabbermouth aspect, right? Where they they can't help but talk, 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 talk. Anyway, I think if they gonna tell you anything, they won't be able to stop themselves. Well, I'll agree with that, right? They're they're very hard to kind of shut themselves up. They can't help but talk about it because that's one of the things that they were. Uh, depends on whether or not you consider it a curse, but it ends up being that it's in, it's impetuous for them to go ahead and actually be able to speak. But you know, they do mention something in the book, and I guess if we think about it this way, I say, "All right, Mike, hmm. see that over there inside that haunted house? You're probably going to find all the treasure that you need and want for the rest of your life. You get in there, there's an old guy who left a whole bunch of gold. Now, if you go ahead and get it, you'll probably be the richest guy in the block for the next ten years coming. Go at it." Hmm. That does suggest if it were so easy, why hasn't someone else done it? What aren't you telling me, Corex? <laughs> right. So what would you guess off of that out of curiosity? Um. So the way that it makes me feel. Like if I'm going to just put myself in character for a moment, is that if they're leaving something out it's because they were supposed to. Yeah. Right, part of part of whatever they're withholding is the message, I guess. You know, it's not just go into the haunted house and get the treasure, but it's you need to learn to step into the unknown when it's time without holding back. Right? So even their even their silence I would interpret right. as part of the the message of what they're bringing to me. But I I don't know. <laughs> A thousand percent. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Because let's be honest, right? Especially us doing reviews and stuff like that. We we know that a vast majority of our friends that we've ever played with, they're like, I want to play a game with you. You're like, all right, cool. And then you're like, I'm going to bring all the stuff. You don't need to know anything outside of just creating your character. I'll take care of the rest, right? Person goes like, great. I don't need the rest of the book then. I'll just show up to game and do whatever. But then you kind of probably won't get someone who's as invested, right? But the person who is invested will be like, hey, what's the book? Let me go ahead and pick it up. And in this case, especially the case I gave you, that Corax wants to give the experience to another youngling, right? Because that youngling has to experience it for themselves. They have to be their own pioneers. They can't just be told everything because then they wouldn't be doing or have the courage to do what they need to do, which is bear witness and or to scout yeah. themselves. So there's only enough information I should be able to give you so that you could go ahead and pick up on the trail. Now, what you find in there, go ahead and tell me what you found when you get in there. Because what I didn't tell you was everyone who's been in there, the last three mortals that came, it's kind of like uh, that scene in Indiana Jones in the Temple, uh, not the Temple of Doom, hmm. uh, the Last Crusade, when they finally make it to the, the side of the mountain, they're going, and uh, they're like the penitent man kneels. The penitent, <laughs> are you kneels? <laughs> See, and, and right before, you know, they sent so many other soldiers in there only to get decapitated because right. they weren't kneeling. Um, and, and so you have to deal from the experience, and like much like Indiana Jones in there, where he recognized he got to kneel and then come back and be like, oh yeah, you got to. It's a scythe machine, decapitates people. You, you might want to watch out about that. And you're like, good, Corex. All right, you can figure that one out. Um, <laughs> next law they take us over to is protect your eggs. I feel like this is a Wu-Tang thing, like protect your neck, yeah. but it's like protect yeah. the eggs. Um, and this one we kind of mentioned a little bit earlier before, right? The eggs are important because they carry so much gnosis within them, so much spiritual energy um, that has been separated from its original intended vessel. Um, prior to hatching, those things could be used by anyone. They talk about how eggs, how uh, mages might use them for magical omelets to be able to juice themselves up. They talk about how banes and or black spiral dancers may do nefarious things with them. What they would do, we don't know. 
And we're better off praying we don't. And I think that's one of the scarier things is not knowing what your enemy would do with such spiritual power. But it's outside of the realm of people to get them. And because they don't procreate as fast as other changing breeds do, um, every egg is an important one. And every loss is just that much more important. Cool thing about the eggs, though, is that they have a culture in terms of you being known as a guardian. Right. We talk about the fact that, all right, well, the eggs got us just dipped in the underworld, but we can't tell everyone. Why? Because if other people tell them to capture you, well, that secret's going to come out at one point or another. Because let's face it, you're a Korax. You can't help but keep your mouth open. And sometimes you might just blabber the wrong thing. However, if you're a guardian, that's of great honor to you. You're ready to be a mentor. Chances are when that egg hatches, they're going to be the one that they're going to come to. And you have the ability to go ahead and check up on that child as well as that egg for as long as it takes. But you also get to call on the community to be like, hey, they're coming after my egg. Other Korax know enough to be like, well, we got to protect this egg and we got to protect our boy or we got to protect our girl to be able to make sure that our, our species survive because there ain't yeah. many of us left, right? That's how they kind of balance the skills out there. Uh, next one. Remember why you're here. Well, it's what about back that, to what man? I was talking about, right? We got this persistent theme throughout the book that these guys, well, seemingly more than any other changing breed, are 100% aware of and committed to the mission from Gaia. Um, they They say, we're not the fighters. We're the scouts and communications officers. Yes, it's tempting to be the one to save the day and rescue the girl, but we're not built for that. And trying stupid heroics is a good way to get yourself killed. I swear to God, all the other changing breeds need to need to like put together a Garu council where they can just like pass on their wisdom to the big bad super hunters because every one of their separate like individual litanies has just just straight calls out a mistake that the wolves make over and over and over again, forgetting the mission. Korax refused to do it. At least according to uh, Raven's laws, they refused to do it. Um, and I dig it. And we had a preview yeah. of this as well, right? Because we saw this as one of the Henge Yokai book where even their courts and uh, their, their Japanese counterpart, the, the Tengu, or I should say their, their Henge Yokai mm -hmm. counterparts of Tengu are, are probably the ones that mm -hmm. kind of instituted this, right? I could see where their influence, especially reading this in this Korax book, it might have come from it as well. Remember your purpose. Your purpose is everything. You mess up on your purpose, you lose sight of everything altogether. Um, but to hear that, remember <laughs> who you are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is yeah. thing. Um, next one, bear witness. Uh, bear witness and the truth matters. I'll mix both of these up and I'll take them... The bear witness part we've already spoken about as well, um, which is no matter what happens, you have to be there to take a look at it. Your purpose is to see for both good or bad what is happening, whether or not the birth of a bane um, and or the creation of one or its summoning versus as well the birth of another Garu or Metis or what have you. Every interaction that does happen, you are there because you have to at least let everyone else know because that was your purpose to begin with, to bear witness, to be able to see everything that happens in almost a very... I have to use the safari, <laughs> the safari photographer um, because you're only there to take a look at it. But it also brings us to the truth matters. You can't lie about what you end up seeing, no matter how horrific it is, no matter who it may not hurt, because that information is going to be of importance somewhere down the line. You, unlike the others, and because all Quaraxes don't have auspices, they don't have a galliard. They are everything all rolled into one. They are the gathered. They have to continue to spread that story. Mm. You know, um, I guess we can quickly run the other ones. Everything's part of the cycle. Anything special to say about that? I mean, that's pretty. Yeah, I mean, I just well. I would point out that I mm, 
it makes the Corex while they're super committed and inflexible on a lot of other stuff. This one makes them feel they, it makes them feel like you can't rely on them to take a position. You know what I mean? Well, why would you say that? So if they say that everything's part of the cycle and they reserve the right to review everything in its own context, what that sounds like to me is it's, it sounds like lawyer speak. It sounds like I'm not going to take a stand until I can capture everything that happened here and evaluate the choices made, blah, blah, blah. And I, there's something to be said for that. But at the same time, at, at some point, right, when is it? When do you have to plant your feet? You know what I'm trying to say? I get what you're saying, but let's uh, let's put this into context then, right? Because imagine this. You are the witness of everything, and at one point or another, you might say to yourself, I've done seeing this lion come out, and it's wiping out all these gazelles in the savannah, right? In this patch of land. And I'm pretty sure if it wipes out this last gazelle, that's it. That's the last of its kind. Who's going to save this gazelle? And you got to imagine, up to including the human photographer, if it was human, right? We'd go like, I shouldn't do it. I have this oath. I promise myself I wouldn't get involved, but if I don't get involved, it's the end of it, right? And for whatever reason, let's be honest as well, they're also part of humans, so emotions do come into play here. At one point, they are going to be compelled to make actions that aren't true to their nature. And the way that it also reads is everything's part of the cycle is you might not understand that that line that's wiping out this group of gazelles because these gazelles probably would have proliferated. It puts bad gene seed in the, the, the spawning pool. Right? We can't tell why the Garo are destroying what they are. We can't tell why the Bastard is keeping their secret in the fashion that they do. It's not for them to judge. It's not for them to get involved with it. There has to be a deeper meaning behind what they're witnessing because if they do put their hands in there, especially if they do it hastily, yeah, they'll fuck up the cycle. You know, they done but isn't up there a, a, an element of hubris built into that, right? You, you assume when you decide not to save the gazelle that that isn't the last one and that there isn't some reason the lion shouldn't be murdering the one. Ah, but I'll count. I will counter with that because remember, Raven thinks it's too smart for its own good. So Raven might know best in all cases. Doesn't mean Raven really does know. Raven just thinks that way, much the same way. Nuisha's trickster, but sometimes you got to learn how not to be the trickster. And sometimes you got to learn how not to be the smart ass, think you're going to be right all the time. Uh, you're more clever than any yeah, other race I mean, out there. They, they, I don't know, man. I want them to. Because, so let me also add, because of the next law, the next of Raven's laws, don't play favorites. Right now, the way it's, the, the way it's written yeah, in the book, they're saying we're privileged to benefit from some of Luna's graces and some of Helios's graces, even though Helios is our patron and kind of, for the most part, defines what we do. We get some, some favor from both and we don't want to screw up that balance. You play favorites with either one, it's going to go bad for us all. But I think that also points to the previous law. Those two laws taken together for me, everything's a part of the cycle and don't play favorites. It says the Koraks have a, a, a arrogance hidden beneath all that integrity we've been talking about. They assume that they are appraised enough yes. of every situation that they can make the call to just be outside of meaningful, impactful decision. And I, mm, it bothers me. It bothers me. Right. Hey, every superhero, like, listen, every hero's got to have a flaw in there, and I think this is where we take a yeah. look at the Korax, right? Um, we'll cover the last two. 
last two ones we got are fly, right? Fly because mama gave you wings, you fly. You're there given wings so that you could actually witness the things that no one else could see from above. And the last one is laugh. And amazingly enough, laugh is there for a reason as well, because you should laugh so you don't break. Because if you don't laugh, you'll cry, right? You ever heard that term before? I got to laugh yeah, because yeah, if I don't, yeah. I'm going to cry instead. This is exactly what we're taking a look at with Corex as well. For the stuff that you do end up bearing witness, they have to smile. They have to take it in stride because sometimes all the stuff that you do see will be considered overbearing, right? And this pretty much covers all of Raven's laws. Now, I think the last thing to kind of cover here is just... I'm not going to cover character creation oh, specifically. From a game, bro. All um, the stuff is in there. It's all in there, DJ. It's great. <laughs> right. However, what I do want to cover is what they mention in this book, especially in the, the preface to creating the character, which it tells you Korax are not Garu. Don't try to play with Korax as if you're trying to play with Garu because we even told you in the beginning, it's not what they're supposed to do. They are there to bear witness, right? The type of story that you'll probably be telling if, with a Korax game versus a Garu game should not be undersold. And I think this is one of the first few times, especially in early early world history, right? Because this book is mm-hmm. written on 98 or so, that it actually does mention something important like that because it does make that distinction that you as the player, especially if you choose to want to play a Korax, can't take for granted. You can't just go, new changing breed, time to go ahead and make a mighty more Power Rangers. I'll be the lower left leg. Before I, I'm going to go ahead and fly. I got these razor sharp wings. I get to fly. I get to caw, caw, and, and get into battle because that's not who they are. It's not what they are. They ask you, the reader, to go ahead and take the opportunity and time to see if this is the type of game you want to play. And especially if you do choose to play this game, just know that these Korax don't act like Garu. They don't work in packs in the same way. If they do create a murder, you know, it's very, very temporary. You only complete a mission and scatter across because they all don't want to lose. They don't want to get killed because one dead, one dead raven is like a is like a server right, going down. Right. You don't want that to happen. Um, but as Mike had also mentioned, you got everything in there. You got gifts that are given by Helios. All types of cool stuff there. Talks about how birds have hollow bones, so you punch one of them, they're gonna feel real good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and yeah, I think that's pretty much it. I don't think there's anything much to kind of go there. Well, but overall, Mike, like, I guess, you know, as we kind of went through the book, for the flavor of the month regarding this changing green, what do you um, think No, no, they're great. They're great. I, I am on the fence about whether I prefer Korax or Bastet, but the, these guys are... And here's the thing. Not only are they, not only is this book a great read, not only are they a super interesting changing breed to play, but they're simple in terms of... If you sit down and you know you want to play a Corex for role play reasons, like you know what they're about, you want to get into the game, you don't have a bunch of weird choices to make. You have enough for variety. And that's it. You're not talking about like 13 clans. You got, it's like a ready-made character that isn't ready-made on a sheet, if, if, if I'm making sense. I love it. No, you're not wrong because, um, you know, my parting comments is I, I definitely do think it's a fun and easy book to read. Now, what I mean easy, it is an easy book to read. When we were reading about, as I mentioned earlier, other changing breeds, the Obtinkling Garo, a lot of the speech is always very subjective and told in a grand poetic fashion. This book just read like a buddy talking to you. It's like, come with me on this journey. Let me tell you about the things I've done seen. And yeah, of course, there's a little bit of embellishment in there, but because it was so much fun to read, because it just felt like there was a buddy that was talking to you in regular human speak or something like common jargon, it felt like, you know, there was a lot more that I was able to absorb off the bat. But um, 
yeah, Korax book. We we both like it. We we think it's definitely worth the read. In fact, it was one of our easiest reads to go through because mm-hmm. of the fact that it was just literally word for word an easy way of telling the Korax. Just tell it as it is. Yeah. At least that's how they're telling it to you. But yeah, folks, go ahead and pick it up if that's something. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, you're more than welcome to go ahead and drop by our Discord and ask us questions about it and are having a discussion about our Korax <laughs> friends there. They don't, don't like call them crows either. They, they, they don't like <laughs> they don't that. Like They're ravens. <laughs> they don't like that. But um, <laughs> we thank you for spending time with us today, folks. Once again, I am DJ and I have my yeah. with me, Mike. We're still kind of figuring out what dropped there. You could ask us on Discord. We'll disclose that. Thank you for listening to our 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you like what you heard and want to support us, please share it with others or leave a review. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.